Harling. You see, people collect all kinds of things. It doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Hello and welcome to Mothball Miscellaneous. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Melissa Watson. And today we're starting what has turned into a series on American manufacturing and glassmaking. It's, there's a lot of information. There is. It was going to be just one episode. And as I was doing research on it, and Melissa was doing research, we were both like, there is so much more than we anticipated. Yeah. And it's so interesting. So today's episode is going to feature kind of the infancy and birth of glassmaking in America. And uh, we're not sure how many parts they're going to be yet. Not sure. Uh, there may be several more. Well, because, you know, like it starts with this, like the infancy of glassmaking that we're going to get into. But then it branches off. You think about all of like the mid-century glassware. Yeah. And glassmaking that happened in this country. And like Ohio is known as the glassmakers of like the world now. Yeah. So it's like, where did this all come to play? And interestingly enough, it also starts with soda lime glass, which was very popular in the making of Pyrex. Interesting. So we're getting used to recording this while also talking. So we are starting... With the infancy of American glass manufacturing. And I'm starting in the American-made manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1608, there were other sources that started manufacturing. and like, or th- So American glass manufacturing started in 1608. There are sources that state that manufacturing also began in 1535. But counting Mexico as a part of the Americas, which feels like cheating because it wasn't. It was very much its own place. And we're not going to take like... Mm-hmm. At least I'm not here going to take like that invention and like fold it into the American story because they already took so much. Okay. I, I don't, maybe that's just my own thing, but. So maybe we need to do one specifically for Mexican made glass. And, uh, another one at the time was Argentinian made glass. Ooh. So. Fascinating. We're going to have to make a b- bullet point B and A and for yeah. that. So in 1608 is when it started in the Americas. Okay. Um, so let's start there. So true American glass it was when the first English colony near Jamestown started in 1608. These were the first attempts at glassmaking, and they failed after only a year. And same with the efforts in Pennsylvania in 1641 and Philadelphia in 1682. They don't have a lot of explanation as to why these glass houses closed, Um, But it could have been because the lack of consumer interest in glass because these were British colonies Mm -hmm. and they were importing so much from England. Yeah. And glass was, it was like glass from England was like the piece de resistance. Like it was the best you could get. There was nothing better. And definitely America wasn't going to make any better. So it was like if your toddler tried to make you a clay pot, you'd be like, well, that's very cute, honey. Right. I'm going to Spain for clay. (laughs) Sorry, babe. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's where this starts, right? It's in, um, in 1682 in Philadelphia. There's just, it's just not happening. And for probate records, it proves that many varieties of glasswares existed in early Philadelphia homes. But like through the early 1700s, there was only two or three advertisements across the periodicals in mm-hmm. this, these colonies that mentioned the sale of glassware outside of window panes. Wow. So I just found it so interesting. So, 
Um, and there was very little known about there was two Dutch operated glasswork glass houses in New York in the 1650s, but there's so little known about it. I couldn't find anything related to it. So there's your kind of rough beginning in the 1600s as things are happening and as glass demand steadily rose in the 1730s. So here enters the one that kind of started it all. Yes. Casper Wooster in German. He's a German born um, man who was the eldest son of Hans and Anna Catherine. And he was expected to follow in his father's footsteps of huntsman, which is what, Melissa? Oh, a uh, forester. Yes. Which is like a like a sheriff, basically. Yeah. To the elector of the Palatinate. Pal- How do you uh, say it? I think it's Palatinate. Palatinate. Um, which was uh, like regions of Germany before it was Germany. Right. So he was expected to follow in those footsteps like his other siblings were doing. Yeah. Oh, it's Palatinate. Palatinate. We missed one syllable. It's Palatinate. Palatinate. So he didn't want to do this. He rejected it and he saw what was happening in the British colonies and was like filled with wonderlust and excitement. And of course, reading all of the stuff that was coming over about how prosperous it was. Yeah. It was easier to grow things. The seasons were mild. Yeah. You know, they were painting this really beautiful picture about what you could have. So he immigrated in 1717 to uh, the first colonies in Pennsylvania. And he is one of the first colonists at this time. You know, like I admire people back then, their commitment. Mm -hmm. Like I'm scared to like travel for a month. Like that would be like, oh my God, that's a long time. And like the the ship voyage. Yeah. My husband's family is a part of the first settlers in this part of the world. Whoa. Colonists. And there's boat documentation of like who loaded up and who came over on what boat and where they settled and like their land and all of this. And it was very interesting. And also some really upsetting historical factors about it too. (laughs) But it was, they were a part of these first 13 original colonies. Yeah. Wow. Um, So he was one of the first, like I said, and when he first came over, he was penniless. He had how many pennies? Nine pennies. To his name. Coming to the new world. Well, and I don't know what a penny was worth back then. That probably is like a hundred bucks we'll now have to or look something. Up the conversion know. of that. <laughs> <clears throat> so when he came over, he entered the brass button and soap making trade. Okay. Is what he went into. He has no history of glass making himself. It's okay. an important distinction to make. So he comes over, he enters the brass making business, and for nearly uh seven years. And or 10 years, he is known for how long his buttons last and the like just quality of them. They were said to last for seven years. And I guess that's a long time for those buttons. I guess right now, if we had a, set, a button that lasted seven years, yeah. you'd start to second guess it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's important to note too that when he was in, uh, what is it called? Palatine? Mm-hmm. Palal- Palatinate. Palatinate. <laughs> Drink every time we say it wrong. <laughs> Palatinate. Um, Palatinate. Uh, He was a forester, which that doesn't sound like to our ears today, like it was any big deal, but it it was a big deal. Like Mm -hmm. that was a thing back then. And then he came here and he was like shoveling ash for the soap makers. Like he was doing the grueling work, like not worth his time work. No. And also important distinction is he was like huntsman and forestry men to the uh, like basically what would have been the king. Right. At the time. So it was a huge honor and family position that he walked away from to come make brass buttons. 
So his and his buttons were known as uh, either the Philadelphia or the Philadelphia pattern. Interesting. In the buttons that he made. So by 1721, he had earned enough money in capital making buttons and soap that he was able to start um, like buying property and buying his first home. And wow. he bought it on the high street, which if you're familiar with any of that, like the high street was like the place to be, yeah. like a prominent place in town. The economy is a little different nowadays. A lot different. I didn't, <laughs> I don't get shit for making buttons. <laughs> so he started to buy up real estate. He's also known, Casper Wister is known as like a real estate tycoon. And he was one of the wealthiest people of non-elite status mm-hmm. in the 13 colonies. So he started to build his home and then he started to import German goods. So he was importing glass and goods and like food and different things that were textiles and whatever Mm -hmm. else. And he had a store in Philadelphia. So he was um, living there. And then this is where he starts to build his factory in New Jersey. So he starts to make all this money from button making and then real estate. And he finally has enough money to build, start building a glass making factory. We're Mm -hmm. jumping ahead a little bit. So Philadelphia was quickly becoming one of the most prosperous ports in the Americas, supporting domestic manufacturers. But this was done in kind of secret secret because they were still British colonies. Right. They could not report like massive successes in these domestic manufacturers. So they were lying about what was happening and undercutting the stuff on their accounting forms about what they were making. So that they didn't have to pay as much in taxes. Right. And also so that England didn't come down on them. Right. Because okay. this was this pre-revolutionary war. Right. So um, in 1760, Philadelphia was the busiest harbor in America. Wow. And the Quakers had a hold on this place as well as a lot of the other colonies, right? Yeah. They kind of controlled all of the business, business endorsements, uh, wealthy families, And all of these things. And Casper, not being a dunce, was like, huh, I kind of see that the Quakers are like a big deal and are (laughs) doing lots of stuff. Those are that's an exact quote from Casper. All right. He was like, okay, I am going to marry a German Quaker. Like he's like, I got to get in on this. Hell yeah. And there is a quote from a periodical at the time that says the Quakers. So they had that hold. So by the careful pyramiding of their interests and astutely arranged intermarriages consolidated their riches and position and gradually coalesced into a distinct upper class. Wow. So he was like, cash me in on that. Yeah. And he married a German Quaker. And um, which was interesting because he like did not ascribe to any of the Quaker stuff, Mm -hmm. but he knew that it was important. And unfortunately his business that he did make really never got a full Quaker endorsement. But was the most successful glass, like glass house, yeah, of history at its time. Yeah, here's a, a fun fact. Okay, do you want to read it? Um, so Casper Wister is the grandfather of Casper Wister. <laughs> um, he's commonly referred to as Casper Whisper the Younger. Um, fun facts about the Younger: he's a botanist. Uh. He oh, was I'm a sorry. physician. He was a physician. The botanist Thomas Nuttall mm-hmm. named the genus Wisteria after him. 
Which and is wild. I know. And we were ju- we were talking about this before the show started. Mm-hmm. Like, was there just not a name? Like, I, I understand that the genus was named Wisteria after Casper Wister, but was Wisteria not a thing at that time? Like, did they not have a name for Wisteria? I don't know. I don't. I think it is. Isn't it Mediterranean? I'm not sure. We'll have to look that up. I don't but know. I don't think it's not. Uh, I don't think it's. It's not a new thing. Live Google. They must have had. Yeah. Wisteria. But um, Sam and I both got really excited about that because we're both into gardening. Mm-hmm. And it was that's just a fun. And Wisteria does not grow here. Interesting tie-in. I know. I love Wisteria. It's okay, gorgeous. So they are native to China, Korea, Japan, southern Canada, the eastern United States, and north of Iran. Southern Southern Canada I've is never a heard, random. Uh, Canada depicted as north and south. <laughs> just Canada. <laughs> Forgive me, Canadians, if I am wrong. Interesting. Oh, very interesting. Well, I wonder, because a lot of those were like East Asian. I wonder if it just hadn't been introduced. Oh, sure thing. And but like when it was natural. I don't, who, I don't know. Yeah. We're not, this is not a Wisteria podcast. No. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> um, the other thing about Casper Wister the Younger is that he was friends with Thomas Jefferson and he tutored Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame. Very interesting. This family's history. I know. Is... Insane. Um, the other interesting thing about the Wister name is it's spelled two ways. W-I-S-T-E-R, W-I-S-T-A-R. But the origin is W, U with umlaut, uh-huh. S-T-E-R. And so two brothers came, John okay. and Casper, and they both decided to just fucking spell their last name different. Because why not? And neither one ever changed it. So you can follow the origins of... The Wooster family, Wister family, uh-huh. between the two brothers and their prominence in Pennsylvania and the 13 colonies. Wow. As like it, independent storylines of each other, which is... Do you think that they like had an argument on the boat over and like, it's going to be A, it's going to mm-hmm. be E. Mm-hmm. And then they it came to blows and they never, yeah. they never resolved. And eventually they both died estranged and... That's it. That's <laughs> or they separated in the line of naming is what yeah. I'm going to call it. Okay. Yeah. They separated and they couldn't like see each other to be like, um, it's like the wheel of fortune. Ah, uh, give me an A. Uh, give me an E. I, that's a, I'm going with that. And then All also right. a duel at 10 paces. Okay. Perfect. So back to glass. Okay. Oh, is that what this podcast <laughs> is about? This one. Uh, Casper, uh, the older son, Richard. Okay. So his oldest son. Okay. Went into business with him. So the glass company had a couple of different names. So there was the Wisterberg Glassworks, mm-hmm. sometimes spelled Wisterberg, B-U-R-G-H. And it was also known as United Glass Company. When I was reading about it initially, that is what it was being referred to in this book I was reading. Okay. Was the United Glass Company. And it was the first successful glass factory. And it was like a co-op of sorts. So uh, Casper Whisper is making all of this money with real estate and selling goods that he finally has enough money to buy 2,000 acres of land and start a glass house, yeah. which is what they were called. Then he took that $2,000 and he bought 50 acres of dense forest land mm-hmm. that had two creeks on it, as well as what he started to notice was natural components that were needed to make glass. So there was sand, there was clay, there was wood. Mm-hmm. There was everything he needed to build. But the one thing he didn't have was glass makers. Right. So he was like, hey, I don't know anything about glass making. And right now, American glass making is a joke. So yeah. I need to bring in German glass makers 
to come to my factory. So when he started the company in 1739, he brought on four German glassmakers and they had a co-op of sorts. And um, the names of these other individuals were, there were four Germans and it was one third ownership and shared the expenses, assets and profits of the three individual joint ventures. So underneath of the United Glass Company, mm-hmm. it was split like General Motors. So there was like three different companies operating under the same company. Okay. So uh, it's very confusing, but it was a way to start business in America and be successful. So um, the uh, people that were underneath of him were, the, so there was Wister and Wenzel. And Wenzel comes from a long line of glassmakers like back to the Middle Ages in Germany. Interesting. The second was between Wister and C. Halter. And the third was between Wister and Grissmeyer and J. Halter. And later on in this article, it says there's no documentation to say that the two Halters were related. So we're not sure if they were related or not. Or if they just were sharing of the same name. Yeah. So he hires these four glassmakers and was like, okay, we need to make a glass factory that works. And we will get into the makings of glass in a different episode. Yeah. Um, so they start making this and this is by the time they're making glass in 1939, he has been in the colonies for over 20 years. He now has a family of his own and children of his right. own. And along in the business ventured is also his son, Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout the like continuation of this company, they mostly hired German glass blowers. And what they made at the time were they started with glass panes, window panes, uh-huh. bottles and housewares or hollow wares, as they called them, did not come much later in production because it was like if you owned glass, you were prominent. Yeah. Um, like there was estates that were written out for people that had the glass listed in their house. Oh, wow. That was used like hollowware glass. Mm-hmm. So how many pictures they had and then like what it was made out of kind of to certain like because it was valuable. So yeah. it was denoting value of the estate. Yeah. So they made over the course of history at their glass house, they made bottles, equipment for scientists. So think like beakers and test tubes and like whatever they were using in laboratories at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and physicians, they made tablewares and hollowwares. They had sugar bowls, candlesticks, uh, jars, jugs, whiskey jugs. And the majority of the wares that can be tentatively attributed to Wister are made out of unrefined bottle glass, often in a a variety of colors, because they didn't mark a lot of their bottles. So now as a collector, if you're looking for this glass specifically, you have to either get the composition scientifically analyzed to match the materials they were pulling out of that area. Holy cow. Or there are some that are so unique to the making of the factory because they were made um, after the day was done and production was done, mm-hmm. glass blowers would make personal items. Okay, out of like basically slag glass and mm-hmm. leftover stuff from the production, and that is what some people still have in collection today, because it's so easy to identify because of the color of it. Wow, very interesting. So along that line, Wister had unlimited access, like I said, to elements around him, which was white silica sand, Mm -hmm. as well as other necessary materials. And the company's success was further aided by New Jersey's low taxation. Now, this was interesting to me as I was doing some reading is he lived in Philadelphia and very rarely visited the factory in Alloway, New Jersey, which is where it would be now. Um, because of the taxation and he didn't want to report all of the profits. Right. So he sold the glass 
in his store in Philadelphia and then his son's store in New York City. Okay. Which was like the way they were working around that. And this was how he was able to obtain more assets for the businesses. So he was yeah. like playing the game yeah. from the very beginning. One thing that I think is really interesting um, is that like if you were to set up a glass company nowadays, you would have to find sources for your materials. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd have to go buy sand and whatever mm -hmm. else you need. But he literally just bought a plot of land and everything was already there. Like yeah. the sand was there. The clay was there. The trees for fires were there. Everything mm -hmm. was already there. And that's something that I don't think is possible now. No. And they also at the time, like they didn't realize what they were doing to the local Right, yeah. Like the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The ecology of the area. Right, yeah. Like they decimated the right. forests. Right. Which eventually, spoiler alert, like started to ruin the business. Right. Because there was nothing to start fires. And there was something, I'll find it. There was something that talked about how much wood they burned per day at this factory. Whoa. Okay. So um, he was also friends, which was crazy, with Benjamin Franklin. Wow. And he made glass globes for Franklin's electricity producing machines. That is rad. Right? So he used, uh, he built several of his machines using the Wisterberg glass globes from Cadwalder Colden and Lewis Evans, for which he paid between 10 and 12 pounds each, which I, had to have been like hundreds of dollars. Yeah, I have no concept of how much that is. But. Right. Um, they also made glass tubes for David Rittenhouse to use in his experiments on electricity. Wow. Right. So by this weird way, he's like fundamental in the research of electricity. Mm -hmm. Well, the like this was like the basis of industrialization. Yeah. Like this is where like we were coming out of British rule and just colonizing another place. <laughs> and then, you know, like... Uh, Starting like building yeah. of what the country was to be, yeah, with manufacturing on the East Coast, circling back to the factory. Mm -hmm. So, when he chose the location of his factory, there were obviously very important reasons right. wood and sand, the other being, um, there were waterways on it, so shipping in of anything that they needed to make the glass mm -hmm. and then shipping out of glass right um was made easy because they were on a waterway that they could just send it down the river right because you i mean uh i don't like to transport glass in my car on paved ass roads right <laughs> let alone some horse and buggy type shit yeah of moving glass around and they were transporting in like the raw materials and mm -hmm. the finished products so they were getting a lot of their glass and window panes was coming from venice at the time Wow. So you figure the port, the harbor of Philadelphia, and then coming in to the manufacturing. So according to a description, the main building of the glass house included two furnaces where the glass was melted and worked. Now, I had read somewhere. So these furnaces were 12 feet long, 8 feet wide, and 6 feet high. Whoa. And had no grate, and the fire was made on the floor. Wow. And each side of the furnace is a bench or a bank of the same material as the furnace of which pots of metal stand um, like with three or four on the side. So that was where the they it was built of bricks of white clay, which needed to be renewed every blast. Yep. Can you imagine being one of the grunt workers there and how miserable it must have been? No. And the furnaces ran. They did not run through the summer months. They ran fall to spring. Oh, because it was just too hot? Yes. And so that is when they're re-blasting 
the furnaces, they're rebuilding them like every season from what I can surmise from what I've read. Right? And um, because of the climate in New Jersey, they could only work from October to May. Wow. Because it was too hot, I'm guessing. Um, And when I was like, how much wood did they consume? So Franklin reported that the glasshouse consumed 2,400 cords of wood annually, which that's October to May. Wow. Which is, what's the, what's a cord of wood? Uh, I don't know the exact measurements. It's like, it's like something like 10 by 10 by 10. Mm -hmm. That's too big. I don't know what it is, but it's something (laughs) like that. It's huge. It's a, that's a significant. Yeah. That's a lot of wood. Significant amount of wood. Um, Finding suitable clay for the pots that they used inside of the furnace was a continuous problem. Franklin claimed they had initially imported the clay from England, but that a source had been found locally. And they had trouble sourcing stuff from England. There was a time period during the manufacturing of glass and making window panes Mm -hmm. that he had sent off for a shipment of like 52 dozen panes of glass or something, like an exorbitant amount. And at the time, it was like like a small amount to order. Yeah. And he did not hear back from the manufacturer. And he paid in advance. Oh, my God. Could not, because they didn't want to do business with somebody that they didn't know. Yeah. So they, like, took that money and, like, never shipped the glass. And he was, like, reaching out to, like, people that were in the shipping departments and, like, going full Karen on the whole business. Well, I don't blame him. Yeah. So South Jersey sand was the primary ingredient of Wisterberg glass with addition of potash and lime. And Mm -hmm. I actually found a recipe. Ooh. So the compositional data, which is what they take if you find a piece of glass that you think is Worcester glass, mm-hmm. um, the proprieties made use of a batch recipe containing approximately 68 weight percentage of local sand, which is that New Jersey sand, mm-hmm. um, 24% dolomitic limestone, and 3% each of soda ash and potash. In addition to green bottle glass, blue, aquamarine, and colorless potash, lead glass and colorless potash glass, potash glass were also recovered from the factory site way like modern day, suggesting that they ranged in a specialized glassware that was produced. So they, it shows the progression of the glass that was being made in this factory from like window panes and mm. tactile, like useful things uh-huh. to then decorative more and, art glass type and of stuff. And hollowware, right. Fascinating. So, last bit on this first series. So, Casper Wister came to the idea of building this factory, like we said, um, with the men that... So, the men we mentioned earlier were the realization of his dream for these German immigrants. So we'll leave you with what Wisterberg Glass Works, this glass house, was producing at the time of starting. And when we meet next, we will dive a little bit deeper into the glass manufacturing of the United States. Okay, cool. So the primary purpose of the glass works was to create utilitarian objects, like I just said, needed in the daily lives of colonists. People were building houses. They were building businesses. They were building all these things. And God damn it, people wanted windows. Yeah. And bottles and containers. Yeah. Like, we need stuff to live, survive, and save the stuff we've grown. Yeah. Um, by the time it was erected, window glass was in general use in the middle colonies as late as 1756. However, a Southern importer wrote that none but the better sort of people glaze their houses. So there starts that window propaganda. Mm. The same merchant also reported that panes of seven by nine size will never sell in this country. <laughs> never. <laughs> And that the sashes, sashes in general are eight by ten, which mm. is when you look at architecture of the time, 
So, um, in 1752, most of the 22,849 feet of window glass in stock at Casper Wister's Philadelphia store, mind you, remember, he was not selling out of the factory. Right. He was in his store, was in the panes of 8 by 10 size. Demand increased during the 1760s for window glass by other sizes, because that guy was wrong. And Richard Wister, his son, advertised most sizes of window glass are 9 by 11, 8 by 10, 7 by 9, 6 by 8, and 5 by 7 by 5. According to this advertisement, uncommon sizes under 16 by 18 are cut on a short notice, meaning this is annoying. Don't ask us. So then the cost of window glass varied uh, in its size from 1752. The Jersey Jersey ranged between six and seven pence per foot, which that sounds expensive at the time. Yeah. Richards, we'll have a conversion next episode. Okay. We'll have a a key. American window glass in New York City. So he sold the family's American window glass in New York City, saying that he was going to sell this glass for cheaper was ballsy, like we said. Yeah. And that is where we're going to leave you with this episode of Mothball Miscellaneous. I can't wait to get into the rest of these uh, facts. That's where my research stopped Mm -hmm. today. And I'm very excited to see where the spider webs and branches off for what we now know as beautiful glassworks from America. Yeah. It's surprisingly interesting. Literally. As soon as Melissa walked into my house, I just started regurgitating facts (laughs) at her so quickly (laughs) while I was eating my dinner. And uh, yeah, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as we did. As always, an important reminder, do not throw stones in a glass house. And I hope you can find a plot of land with all the natural resources to make whatever you want. Whatever you want. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.